0: Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm Pastor Sean Cole, the lead pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church here in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. Uh, This past Wednesday night at our church, we started a new teaching for our Wednesday night adult seminars, and I'm going to be teaching through the book of Hebrews. And so each week on the Understanding Christianity podcast, we're going to upload the sermon audio from that teaching and so today's teaching is going to be from Hebrews chapter 1 and so this was taught live in a Wednesday night class and so I invite you to listen to tonight as we do an overview of the book of Hebrews and introduce the glory and superiority of Christ above all things in Hebrews chapter 1. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. All right, well, welcome, guys. Some of you, this may be your first time to a Wednesday night study. It's a little bit different than Sunday morning. It's a little bit more interactive. We've got PowerPoint, and I usually stop and answer questions and things like that. And so um, what I want to begin by doing is just get a show of hands. How many of you have ever done a study on Hebrews? One, two, few. How many of you have read the book of Hebrews? Hebrews. <laughs> How many of you have found the book of Hebrews hard to understand? Okay. It is one of the hardest books in the New Testament to really understand because why do you think it's called Hebrews? Because it's addressed to Jewish people. And so you had to know a lot of the background of what was going on during that time, especially in the Old Testament. And so what I want us to do tonight is to do a little bit of introductory work behind the the book And then we'll dive into chapter 1 and see how far we get. But every time we come to a book of the Bible, we've got to ask some introductory questions about the book um, that helps us understand it. So let's just ask the question, the number one question tonight. Here's the first question. Is Hebrews a letter or is it a sermon? And the answer is yes. It is a letter written to a specific group of people, but most scholars believe that it's actually a sermon manuscript. So really what we have in the book of Hebrews is a sermon manuscript. So you guys tell me, like on Sunday mornings when I preach, I preach from a manuscript. It's, it's actually on my iPad, as you can see. But after the service, out on the Welcome Center table, you guys can get my sermon manuscript and so this is probably his manuscript if you will of what he wrote to that church in a sermon also as a letter and it's also inspired because it is scripture so let me ask you another question who wrote the book of Hebrews if you're Charles Spurgeon it's Paul dogmatically Um, actually the author is anonymous we don't have a lot of information about when the, date, when the book was dated, who exactly were this group of people that he wrote to. We don't have a lot of details, but there have been a lot of different opinions throughout the years on who the author of the book of Hebrews are is. So let me give you those options. Number one option is Paul. This has been the traditional view of the early church Uh, There's been some debate on that. I would probably say that I I, I personally, I'm not going to be dogmatic on this, but I personally don't believe Paul was the author. And there's a bunch of reasons why. Um, Number one, um, the person that's writing this book does not consider himself an eyewitness. Now, was Paul an eyewitness? Yes, because Jesus appeared to him. Okay? Okay. Also, some of the vocabulary and style that's used does not sound like Paul. And a lot of the motifs and themes that are brought up in Hebrews, Paul does not bring up in his other letters. Now, it could be Paul, but we can't be dogmatic. Another person says it could be Luke or a close associate of Paul. That's the modern view. There's a lot of modern. Actually, my my seminary professor in seminary, I think he believes Luke is the author of, of Hebrews. And there's an argument that it's Luke because it's written at a very high Greek style. And Luke was probably the most educated of all the people that wrote the the New Testament. And so some people argue that Luke. Some people argue that it was Barnabas. You remember Paul's traveling companion, Barnabas, the, the son of encouragement. This was also kind of in the early church, an idea. Apollos, you guys remember who Apollos was? He was the preacher that was in Corinth, who was very powerful, but then Priscilla and Aquila had to pull him aside and say, hey, you're an awesome preacher, but you got some word theology. Let's set you straight. And he he was this great orator. Some people believe it was Apollos. And unknown. Unknown. And that's the one that we're going to go with. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. But who was it written to? Why is it called... The letter to the Hebrews. What's a Hebrew? Okay, so a Hebrew is another word for what? A Jewish person. So, is there such a thing as Jewish Christians? Okay, so what is the most important thing about you? Your ethnicity or your relationship with Christ? Your relationship with Christ. So these people are Christians first. They're Christians in that they have trusted Christ for salvation. They've been born again. But they happen to be ethnically and socially Jewish, which meant that there would be a lot of temptations to go back to the Jewish way of doing things. So you guys just tell me, what are some Jewish things that were around during that time that you guys maybe have read about or remember that that would, would have been practices that maybe their family or people around them would practice as Jews? You guys tell me, what would be some of those things? Circumcision. Okay, circumcision. Can't really help that as a kid. That's you know, that's forced upon you. Um <laughs> What are, some, what are some other things they would have done? They would have gone to the synagogue. They would have been involved in what? The temple worship. The sacrificial system, like the sacrifices. The dietary laws. Now, let me just ask you a question. Do any of these things make you a Christian? Those are all outward things, right? Okay, so let's just stop before we even talk about Hebrews. Hebrews. <laughs> Does church attendance make you a Christian? Does being baptized make you a Christian? Does stacking grease BBs and garlic peanut butter and singing the national anthem backwards make you a Christian? Okay, I don't know where that came from. So there are some things that are very outwardly Jewish that were a temptation for these Jewish Christians to go back to And the the whole purpose of this letter is to warn, is to encourage, is to challenge these Jewish Christians. Jesus is better than all these things that you want to go back to. And these things are pulling you back. And so, here's the audience. Jewish Christians who were in grave danger of committing apostasy by reverting back to Judaism. What is apostasy? You have no idea. That's a big deal in Hebrews. What's an apostate? What's what's apostasy? Falling away, away, turning back. It's not necessarily losing your salvation because you can't lose it, but it's basically saying, I'm going to denounce Christianity and turn my back on. And that's what these Hebrew Christians were in danger of doing, was saying, I don't really... I, I like the idea of having Jesus as my savior because he saves me from sin, but this whole lordship of following him with my entire life, I really don't like because it's not comfortable. I'd rather go back to my old way of life where I don't have pressure from my family. It's easier. I can go back to all these rules and regulations where at least I can have something tangible to express my religion. This whole issue of, of living for Christ is just too difficult. Okay, so that's, that's the issue in Hebrews. Okay? Okay. So what's the ultimate aim of the book? Why is it written? Here's why I think it's written. To give us a glorious portrait of Christ to motivate us to persevere and endure the hardships of being Christians in a world that hates Christians. So let's just stop. Do we live in a world that hates Christians? Okay. Is it hard to live in a world that hates Christians? So what's the temptation for us as Christians that live in a world that hates Christians? What's, what's the one big temptation that we would all have? Be a secret agent Christian. Not be an example. Not live for Christ. Not live for the gospel. It would be a whole lot easier to say, you know what, this whole Christianity thing, everything's coming against it. It would be a whole lot easier just to not be that. Okay, is that a real temptation? Now, most of you here wouldn't stand up and say, yeah, yeah I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to denounce Christ. Nobody here would probably stand up and say that. But by the small choices that you make, would you be slowly over time walking away from the faith? I'm not saying you would do that. I'm just saying, is that a temptation? Okay. So what's the one thing that's going to motivate you not to do that? Is it going to be rules and laws and regulations that is going to motivate you? Is it going to be your pastor browbeating you over the head saying, get your act together, you stupid Christians? <laughs> Is that going to work? That'll, work? That'll work. Is it going to be turning up K-Love as loud as you can in your car and hoping that by osmosis you become a better Christian because you're interdating yourself? I mean, what's it going to do? What's it going to be? We've got to see Jesus in all of his glory as better than anything else this world has to offer. And that's why the title of, that I've titled this is Jesus is Better. And the reason why I've titled this Jesus is Better is it's the key word that shows up in the book of Hebrews. I think it shows up, I want to say, like 11 times. It's the key word. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Well, better than what? We'll, we'll go through and look at that over the weeks let me give you a quote from our friend, Ardesertia. Um, he came back in 2007. He preached here at the church. He wrote a book. This is quoted in his book. Um, but I want to um, just kind of give you the quote that he gives because I think it's, it's really good. He says, How do you expect me to persevere through the inescapable hardships that relentlessly haunt me as a consequence of identifying myself as a follower of Jesus Christ? The answer, my friend, is that you persevere by submitting yourself to a reinvigorating vision of the Son of God. As a consequence, you will discover that you cannot turn away from Him, that you will not turn away from Him, that His greatness is too compelling, His majesty too alluring, His glory too captivating. Rather than forsake Him, you would willingly surrender everything to have Him. So that's what we hope to do over the next however long it takes is to have a new vision for who Jesus is. How many of you think you know who Jesus is? How many want to know Jesus more? Yes, that's why we're here. So the key word is better. What makes Jesus better? What is it about him that should allure us away from the world to put a captivating gaze upon him and his beauty? Well, that's the way the writer of Hebrews starts his letter. Before he tells us to do anything, he's going to set forth seven, that sounds like a biblical number, doesn't it? Seven descriptions of who Jesus Christ is as the Word of God. And we find these in just the first four verses. Okay, So let's read together Hebrews chapter 1. Verses 1 through 4, and I may say some things that aren't in your notes, so if I get off track, get me back on track, okay? <laughs> I don't have a microphone, but I, I do have the floor, so it's kind of dangerous, all right? so All right, here we go. Let's read Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son now let's just stop right there before we go any further the writer is telling us that in the old testament how did god speak many different ways what are some of the ways he said he spoke to the prophets but what are some of the ways that god spoke in the old testament burning bush what clouds fire dreams a talking donkey if you remember, some of you were in Tuesday morning's men's study. Uh, what Prophets coming down in a whirlwind. There's a lot of huge, powerful ways that God spoke in the Old Testament. But what is he saying now? But now, verse 2, in these last days. Now, my question for you is when did the last days begin? The minute Jesus went back up to heaven, the last day started. We're just closer to the, last, to the end than we were yesterday. So if somebody says, we're living in the end times, say, great, we've been living in the end times for the past 2,000 years. We're just one day closer to the end. But how has God spoken now? What's the final word? But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So who's the final word of God? Okay, let's just do a little bit. Let's just trace a little bit on the board here. This is not in your notes. It just popped into my head. How did God create the world? Okay, so at creation... God spoke the word, right? Okay. When God came to Adam, what did he do with Adam? He spoke the word to Adam. He spoke a word to Noah. He eventually spoke a word to Abraham. Then he spoke out of the burning bush to who? Okay. Now, at that point, God does something very unique with Moses. What does God do with Moses? He says, I will be your mouth. You're now my mouthpiece. So now God begins to speak through human agents his word. So what was Moses? Moses was a prophet. He went up on the mountain, got the word of God, came down and spoke it. And so Moses spoke God's word. All right, so let's write this down. Moses spoke God's word. Then who was the next big great prophet to come? Samuel. Samuel spoke God's word until he died. Then you had... Elijah then you had Elisha and then you had like the prophets so you had like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Jonah and Nahum and all the 12 prophets that you have Daniel that you have at the end of the Old Testament and so God has always spoken through all these different means all these different peoples all these different ways okay how does the New Testament begin who does God speak through in the New Testament John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets, even though he's in the New Testament, because he announces the way of the Lord. How does John 1.1 begin? In the beginning was the Word. Word, and the Word was God, the Word was with God, the Word became flesh. So God has always spoken, all the way back to creation, He's always spoken His Word, But the finality, the culmination of everything that God has spoken rests in the living word, Jesus. So God has finally spoken in Jesus. And now what do we have? We have the words of Jesus and we have the Bible. So this is the final word of God, right? Do we add anything to this? No, No, this is the final word. Okay, so let's keep reading. So let's begin to look at these seven descriptions that the writer begins to give us about who Jesus is as the final word of God to captivate us from the very beginning of this book that Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. So here's number one He is the messianic heir of the universe. Sounds ominous. What does it mean, He's the messianic heir of the universe? He is the heir of all things. What's an heir? Inheritor. Okay, so who's the king? God. What has God given to his son? Everything. Okay, so Jesus has the right and authority to be over everything. Okay, now I'm going to give you a bunch of Old Testament passages that correlate to what we're talking about. So Psalm 2.8 is a messianic psalm. And by a messianic psalm, we just mean in the Old Testament, these psalms predicted the Messiah, okay? And we know who the Messiah is, right? The Messiah is Jesus. What does the word Messiah mean? It means anointed one. The anointed one. Now, we'll come back to this, but I just want to introduce it now. It's important to talk about Jesus as the anointed one. In the Old Testament, who was anointed? Priests. priests. Okay, priests were anointed. Like Aaron and his sons, the priests were anointed. Who else was anointed? Kings. King David was anointed. The kings were anointed. Who else? One other group. Prophets. These are backwards. Prophets, priests, and kings. Three big categories of individuals in the Old Testament were anointed with oil to put God's stamp of approval on them to serve a purpose. Okay, So what was the purpose of a priest? To sacrifice on behalf of the people, to pray for the people, to sacrifice bulls and goats and animals for the sins of the people. What did the king do? ruled and reigned and shepherded the people. What did the prophets do? They They proclaimed the word of God. Now, let me just ask you a trivia question. Was there any one person in the Old Testament who fulfilled all three of these roles? Was there ever a king who was also a priest and a prophet? Was Moses a priest Yes, and that he wasn't an Aaronic priest, but he actually got to go into the Holy of Holies. Okay, let's just say this Was Aaron a priest? Was Aaron a king? Was Aaron a prophet? Okay, was Samuel a prophet? Was Samuel a priest? Yes, he sacrificed. Was Samuel a king? No, okay, was David a king? Was David ever a prophet? No, was David ever a priest? No, but there was the one time we looked at a few weeks ago on Sunday morning where he wore the ephod, he wore the priestly garment. Okay. There was never one person in the Old Testament that fulfilled all three roles of an anointed person, okay, of an anointed one. So when Jesus comes as the Messiah, the anointed one, guess what happens in the New Testament? Finally, after all these years of the Old Testament, you have one who fulfills all three of these roles in one person as the anointed one. Is Jesus a priest? He's the sacrifice himself. Is Jesus a king? Is Jesus a prophet? He's the, pro- he's the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. Okay, So he is the anointed one, the Messiah. And so when we talk about the Messiah, think about the fact that when we say Messiah, it's more than just a term. It means that he's the anointed one. He's the prophet. He's the priest and the king. He's the ultimate <laughs> of all those Old Testament prophecies. So Psalm 2.8 eight. God says, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Who's he talking to in this psalm? God the Father is talking to Jesus the Son and saying, based upon your death, burial, and resurrection, I'm going to give you everything. You are going to be the heir of all things. Does Jesus own everything? Is he the heir of all things? All things. Now, think, let's just stop and get our little tiny brains to think for a minute. All things. What can we not see that's out there? Let's not talk about space first. Let's talk about our Earth. Anybody gone to the depths of the ocean and seen what's down there? We we don't even have crap. Do we have Don? You know more about this than I than I do, don't you? <laughs> she's like she's like blue planets. and blue. What's the other one called? Um, human planet. Blue planet. Human. Is there a vessel that can go down to the very bottom of the ocean and scour and look and see what's there? No, not the very bottom, not the very bottom, of, the bottom. of the ocean. Okay, so there's not a vessel that's gone to the very bottom of the ocean. Okay, are there some mountain peaks? Maybe, I mean, you know, that new movie Everest is coming out, but are there some mountains or areas of the world that have not been totally discovered yet? Okay, so just on our planet, there's some things we don't know about. Let's talk about space. What's the furthest we can see in space with the naked eye? The moon, the sun. Okay, what about the Hubble telescope? Is there stuff beyond even that? Okay. So there is a vast, expansive universe, and Jesus is the one who controls what? All things. And not only that, what's the second thing the writer says? He's the creator of the universe. Why does he own it? He created it. What does it say there at the end of verse um, 2? Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he what? created the world john 1 3 so this is the second thing about jesus he's the creator of the universe john 1 3 all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made so theological question you like that terminology tiffany yeah Yeah. is jesus a created being is jesus like less than the father Is Jesus equal with the Father? Was Jesus there at creation? How do you know that? Were you there? No, none of us were there. We know that because the Word of God says that. John says all things, what are all things again? All All things were what? Made or created through Jesus, and without Jesus was not anything made that was made. So there's not anything out there that's created that didn't come into existence because Jesus, because if not... How am I going to say that? Jesus was the creator of all things. Let's just put it that way. Okay? He's the creator of the universe. Colossians 1.16 is another verse that tells us that. For by him, this is talking about Jesus, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Okay, not only tells us that he made all things, but where did he make those things? In heaven and earth, (coughs) visible and in... What are some invisible things we can't see? Angels. Air. Air, Okay. (laughs) All things were created through him, and and this is important. All things were created what? So who's the center of the universe? I thought it was us. I thought it was all about having your greatest life here on earth and (laughs) achieving your potential and doing everything to be centered upon you. Isn't that what a lot of Christian pastors may tell you? It's all about you. But what does the Bible say? Everything was created by Jesus and for Jesus. Which means ultimately who's the ultimate who's the highest pinnacle of creation? No, who's the highest pinnacle of creation? Humans. We are the highest pinnacle of creation. So we were created for him, to to glorify him, to have a relationship with him. So not only that, but here's the third thing that the writer tells us. He is the radiant glory and exact representation of God. Look at verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, I don't know what some of your translations say there in verse 3. Do you, some of your translations that may have a different translation than ESV, does it say radiance? Does all your say radiance? or Does anything say effulgence? Does anybody have effulgence? Or does it all say radiance? Does every translation say radiance? Okay. Brightness. Brightness. Okay. Brightness, radiance. Th- that Greek word shows up nowhere else in the Bible. And it basically means effulgence or shining forth. A radiating light. Now, let me just ask, let me just, let me give you an illustration here. What's the difference between a reflector and a floodlight? Or your headlights. Okay. So you're driving down the road and there is a, what are reflectors on the road to do? To alert you that what? There's danger ahead. Does the reflector give off light? The reflector does. Why is it called a reflector? Because it reflects the light. Okay. What's the source of the light? Your headlights. Okay. This is like a science lesson. Okay. Are we all ready to go here? Okay. This, that Greek word does not mean Jesus simply reflects God's glory like a reflector. It means that he actually is the source or the radiance or the outshining of God's glory. Is there a difference between that? Because one is we are created to reflect the glory of God, Right? But we're not the source of the glory of God, are we? Do we radiate God's glory? No, we reflect it. Think about moon and sun. Does the moon give off light? What's the only way you can see the moon? A reflection of the sun. Okay. What's the real source of light? The sun. So here's the analogy. We're all the moon. Jesus is the sun. Does that make sense? He's the source. We are just created to reflect his glory. So Jesus doesn't just reflect God's glory as if he's inferior. He's actually the source, the shining forth of all of God's glory. And not only that, what does the writer say? He is the what? Exact imprint. What do your other translations say besides exact imprint? Does he use the word exact imprint? Representation Representation, imprint. Basically, that term exact imprint was used of coins. Back in those days, they would stamp a coin... (laughs) And they would, and it would basically let you know it was like a $5 or, you know, a drachma or a whatever to mark its identity. So, Jesus is not the same person as the Father, but he is the exact same deity as the Father. Make sense? That's the doctrine of the Trinity, right? One God, three persons. Sounds like a VBS song a couple years ago. One God, three persons. Okay, so one there's one God who's one in essence, one in being, one in substance, but he exists as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The Father is fully God. Jesus is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. They're not lower than each other or higher than each other. They're all equal, but they all share the same substance as God. So Jesus is the exact Imprint the exact representation of God. So think about this for a moment. What have we looked at? Just the, just the first three things here. Jesus owns everything. Jesus created everything. And Jesus is the shining forth of everything that God is. What did Jesus say to his disciples? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus is the physical manifestation of the invisible God. Can we see, the, can we see God the Father at all? He does not have a body. He's invisible. He lives in heaven. But on earth, they were able to see Jesus in all of his glory. Now, not only that, here's the fourth thing. Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word. Look at the last part of verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds or he sustains the universe by the word of his power. He sustains it. Do you guys know what deism is? Ever heard that term deism? Deism? Let me explain to you what deism is. Our founding fathers were deists, like Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin. They believed in a deity. They believed in some type of supreme being up there. But here's what they viewed about God. God created the universe and kind of let it go and stepped back. And he's not intimately involved in the universe. He kind of intervenes if there's a major catastrophe. But they use the analogy, it's like a watchmaker. In the old days when you would wind a watch, you'd wind the watch up as the watchmaker and you'd step away and let the watch wind down. And that's what they viewed God was. God's that proverbial eternal watchmaker. He's wound the universe up. But it's on its own to keep winding, keep going, and he steps back. What does it say about Jesus? What does it mean that he is the sustainer? He's intimately involved in his creation. And do you guys remember the, the myth of Atlas in Greek mythology? What was the story of Atlas? He's holding up the world on his shoulders, right? Is that the image of Jesus? Jesus is kind of down there holding up the world on his shoulders, Better hold this thing up or it's going to fall off. No, really the word, the word there that's used for sustain or to uphold carries this language. The language of upholding or sustaining carries the idea of movement or progress. Jesus is moving history to its desired end. It's not like he's just passively holding the universe there. Jesus is sovereignly moving history to its intended end. So, so let me just ask you a question about the sovereignty of Jesus. Is there any molecule outside the reign of Jesus' sovereignty? Is there a maverick molecule out there that's roaming around that Jesus doesn't have control over? If there was, R.C. Sproul, if there was, that's an R.C. Sproul quote, if there was, would Jesus be sovereign? So let me ask, how you, do you struggle with this? If you've been around here long enough at Emmanuel, you know we believe strongly in the sovereignty of God. Do, how, how does it sit with you that God is sovereign over all things? Does that bring you comfort or does that scare you? Now, you, have to, you don't have to answer it out loud. <laughs> does it bring you comfort that Jesus is moving history to its desired end? Because <clears throat> after all, next week you guys know is the Shemitah and the four blood moons. The world's going to end. <laughs> I'm just I'm just joking. You have all these prophecy people and all these pundits saying, on September 13th when the Shemitah and the blood moon on the last day of Rosh Hashanah and everything, the planets align and there's going to be a stock market crash and that's when Armageddon's going to hit and the rapture, blah, 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 blah. Okay, maybe. But does it matter because who's bringing it to an end? Jesus has got everything under control and everything's going to happen under his timetable. Nothing surprises Jesus. It's not like Jesus and the devil are playing chess. And there's this big, huge cosmic chess board. And the devil makes a move, and Jesus is like, oh, no, what am I going to do? So Jesus makes his move. The devil's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Devil makes his move. Jesus makes his move. We're not sure who's going to win in the end. We have to wait till the game's over. Is that the way the universe is? No. no. I would say this. The chess game's already fixed. Jesus has won. He doesn't even need to play it because he already knows the end, okay? So let's just review. He is the heir or owner of all things. He is the creator of all things. He's the shining forth glory of all that God is, and he sustains everything by what? What does it say there? He sustains everything by the word of his power. So how does Jesus keep everything going? By his, we talked about earlier, by his. Now, I don't, don't ask me how he does that. I have no idea. The Bible doesn't explain how Jesus does that. I don't know if he's up in heaven saying, universe, keep moving. (laughs) I don't know. All I know is that God created by his word, God has always used his word, and Jesus is the final word, so it makes sense to me that Jesus keeps everything going through the power of his word, which shows us the importance of the word of God, right? All throughout the Bible, the word of God's been important, okay? All right, let's look at the next thing that he's done, or he is. Number five, he made purification for sins. Literally, he himself made purification for sins. After making purification for sins, okay, let's just, this is where the writer of the Hebrews is going to introduce a concept that's going to go all the way through Hebrews. Hebrews. It's this whole imagery of the Old Testament sacrificial system with Jesus as the ultimate high priest. What is purification? What's the word mean? You are made pure. pure, Okay, you're made pure, you're made clean, you're made holy. In the Old Testament, how was a person made pure, clean, or holy? Okay, they had to have a sacrifice. So something had to be killed, right? What was killed usually? an animal okay when was that when when did that happen you guys remember when it happened on one day it was called yom kippur the day of atonement on that one day the high priest and only the high priest would go inside the tabernacle okay so here's the tabernacle it's that tent in the wilderness that portable tent And inside the tabernacle, you had what was called the holy place. And in the very, very center, you had the most holy place called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, which was in the very center, you were only allowed to enter that on one day, the Day of Atonement. And only the high priest could enter there. And what he did was he would sacrifice an animal on behalf of the sins of the people, and that sin, that sacrifice, would purify or cover, or forgive the people. My writing's terrible. Forgive the people for how long? Year. One year. So you stacked up sin after sin, and then, you know, if it got to year, you know, day 364, what were you thankful for? Oh, good, tomorrow's the Day of Atonement. I'm going to get my sins covered for another year. So year after year after year, this whole process had to happen to get purification. Okay. Now let me ask you a question: How many times did Jesus die on the cross? Once was it every year? Okay, so He Himself made purification, made purification. Did He make purification possible, or did He actually make it? He 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 made purification. He pure he, When He died on the cross, He actually purified or forgave His people. So. Here's the image that he's introducing from the very beginning, and he doesn't come out and say, hey, Jesus is the high priest, but he's trying to draw our attention to that original Hebrew audience that would have understood that, saying, Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the sacrifice. The whole sacrificial system, everything that happened in the Old Testament, it's pointing towards what Jesus has done. He made purification. He has brought forgiveness through his death. Okay? Now, it's important... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He sat down at the right hand. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's the key reference for the entire book. Psalm 110.1 The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is going to show up in chapter 1, verse 13, chapter 8, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 12, and chapter 12, verse 2. This whole idea of Jesus sitting down. Where's he sitting down? At the right hand. What's the significance of the right hand? It's a position of honor and authority. And what's he doing? He's propping his feet up on an ottoman. And who's underneath the ottoman? Or what's the ottoman? The enemies, okay? Now, let me ask you a question, and maybe you don't know this. Oh, actually, let's go to Philippians 2, 9. (coughs) Philippians 2, 9 and 10. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has the position of being King of kings and Lord of lords. Now it's very significant that Jesus sat down. You may think, well, that doesn't mean much to me. Does that mean he was tired? If you go back to the Old Testament, you go back to Leviticus, you go back to Exodus, you go back to Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, and you look at the furniture. And if you go back and do a study of the furniture and the responsibilities of the priests, they had to keep the bread of presence on the table always going. They had to clean the utensils. They had to sacrifice. They had to keep the altar of incense burning. They had to do all these different things. There was one piece of furniture that was never in the temple. Never in the in the tabernacle, what was the one piece of furniture that was not in there? A chair or a stool, because the priest could never sit down because the work was never done. They always had to keep the lights burning, keep everything going. So that one piece of furniture, there was not a chair in the holy of holies. Now, why is it significant that Jesus sat down? What did he cry what did he cry out on the cross? It is, he didn't say it's, it's halfway done. And it's not like you said, whew, it's finished, now I can sit down and relax. That's not what it means. It means that everything that God required of Jesus to bring about our purification and our forgiveness was completed on the cross and as a result of his death, burial and resurrection he is now seated at the right hand of the Father and as he's seated there he is ruling and he's reigning in a position of authority. It's not like Jesus is passive. Actually he's interceding there. Let me just take you to a passage of scripture because oftentimes we don't talk about and this is not even in your notes but I'm going to put it on here anyway. You may never have heard of the session of Christ. Have you ever heard of the session of Christ? His session? It's a theological term. Okay, we talk a lot about Jesus' life, right? He lived a perfect life, right? Talk a lot about Jesus' death, right? Talk about his burial. We talk about his resurrection. We talk about his ascension, right? Right? back up to the Father, and we talk about His return. One day He's going to return. But the question is, what's He doing right now? He's back up in heaven and He hasn't come back. So He's at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. That's called the session of Christ. It's His ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father right now, doing these things. He's upholding the universe. He's he's doing things. What's He doing? Turn to Romans chapter 8. And this is what Jesus is doing for you. For you specifically, if you've trusted Christ for salvation, if he's your Lord and Savior, this is what Jesus is doing for you. So pick up in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Romans eight thirty-one. And again, this isn't in your notes. It just popped into my head, but I think it's important to talk about the section of Christ, his rule, his reign. What is he doing right now at the right hand of the Father? in that position of victory and power and glory. Okay, so Romans thirty one. Let's, let's just read this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Rhetorical question. If God is for us, who can be against us? What's the answer? Nobody. And why? Why can, why can nobody be against us? Well, he answers it. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So Jesus died on the cross so that we could be given all things, all these wonderful things. Verse 33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who, what, is it, what does your Bible say there? Who is at the right hand of God. And what's he doing? Interceding. He's interceding for us. Now, what in the world does that mean? He's interceding for us. What does it mean to intercede? Speak on your behalf. Speak on your behalf. Go, between. Go between. Get involved. Get involved. Okay, what were the things that Paul just brought up? Who can come against you? Nobody. Why? Because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, blocking those people trying to get to you. Can Satan bring an accusation against you? Not that's gonna stick, because Jesus is right there. Interceding also means praying. Now he's already finished the work on the cross, has he not? So he's not he's not in a sense sacrificing himself again he's the risen lord but he's interceding in the sense that he's he's be actively involved in your behalf to keep you protected now we often read the next verse right but this what do we often read what is, how does verse 35 start who shall separate us from the love of christ we're very familiar with that right Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered? No, and all these things were more than conquerors through Him who loved us, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Why is that verse right before that verse? Why is verse 34 right before verse 35 and following? Why can nothing separate us from the love of God? Because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. He's purchased us. And so when you think about Jesus right now, when you pray to Jesus, what are you pray- who are you praying to? You are praying to the one who's the heir of all things. You're praying to the one who created all things. You're praying to the one who has the glory outshining of God of, over all things. You're praying to the one who upholds the universe by the power of His word. You're praying to the one who made purification for sin. And you're praying for the one who sat down and He's sitting down right now interceding for you. Does that make you want to worship Jesus? Now, the last thing introduces us to how the rest of chapter 1 is going to go. So let's go back to Hebrews. And you might think, well, this is kind of weird. Why in the world is this brought in? What's the seventh thing here? Jesus is better or superior to the angels. Look at verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, we are introduced here to the word better or superior. Sometimes it's it's the same Greek word, but sometimes it's translated better, superior. What does yours say? Better, superior? It's it's all the same thing. And, And I guess I was wrong. It's 13 times. It shows up 13 times. Now, what in the world has this to do with anything? Jesus, well of course Jesus is better than the angels. Don't we all know that? There must have been something going on in this church. Among these people, where they were fascinated with angels to the point of wanting to worship them. This was kind of a craze a few years back. I don't know if it's still around, but do you guys remember the angel craze? Touched by an angel. What was the other one with um what's his Highway name? To Highway to heaven. And then for a long time, like everywhere you went, there were angel stuff you bought, angel figurines and angels this and that. And there was like this huge fascination with angels. And you talk about, you know, this preoccupation with angels almost to the point of worshiping them. Now are angels real? Are they to be worshipped? Are they better than Jesus? No, they're not. But for some strange reason, the author of the book of Hebrews had to address angels because there must have been something in that original church that gave them a propensity to worship angels. Now, let's, let's, not, let's, let's, let's just stop here, and it doesn't have to be angels, but you guys tell me what are some things that may even be biblical, may be good, that people are prone to worship or give preoccupation to over Jesus? Today may not be angels, but what are some things that people may give a preoccupation to over Jesus? Saints. saints. Okay, so if you're from a Roman Catholic tradition, you may pray to saints, get wrapped up in saints, asking for your patron saint to help you to the point where the saint becomes more popular or more important to you than Jesus. Is that what you're basically saying, Risa? Okay, what were you gonna say, Russell? I just agree, yeah. You agree? Okay, I concur. What, what are some other things that we may put above Jesus? Pastors, okay. I hope not this one. So some people may worship their pastor like they put their pastor up on a pedestal and it's all about my church has such and such pastor and he's he's the anointed man of God and, and never speak ill of my pastor and he's he's God's gift to heaven and or God's gift to people and he's the best thing since sliced bread and he's all that. Okay. Do you have an example of that? I don't know who worships their pastor. It sure would be nice, but I don't know who doesn't obviously Joel Osteen or something? Okay, well, there's some people that, yeah, there, there may be people like big-name celebrity pastors. Yeah. So, like, celeb- maybe people put, like, there's a celebrity pastor mentality in our world today where, you know, if you don't have this mega church with a celebrity pastor who's charismatic and captures people's attention, then, you know, and let's just stop and talk about this for a minute. We stopped and talked about a lot of things tonight. Let's stop and talk about this. What, what, what happens to the pastor who's a plain speaking, ordinary, everyday Joe who may be pastoring a church of 50, but he's faithful to God's word, he loves his people, and he's never going to write a book or be on a concert circuit? Is he any less than because of that? But what have we done in our culture? We've said, you've not really made it until you've written a book or you've got a megachurch, or you've got a huge following. And so we put these celebrity pastors up on a pedestal, and there's very few of them around the country. How many pastors do you think are pastoring the churches of 50 around the country? And a lot of times bivocational. A whole lot more than megachurches, would you Would you imagine? And so sometimes we tend to worship success. I think maybe more than worshiping a pastor, we worship success or worship our Church or worship this or that, and then it becomes more important than Jesus. Yes, Don. It has an interesting point, though,
1: because I think that. Well, I remember working in the Christian bookstore a long time ago, and this lady came in, and she was from California, and she had been going to John MacArthur's church. And I remember her just being so down because she could not find a church anywhere in Colorado Springs because she had gone to John MacArthur's church. I mean, I guess we can't compare to that. Anywhere here, okay? But I'm sorry. You live here now. you got to find some place. I, I, I'll tell you guys. But
0: then, but then oh, sorry.
1: What we tend to do, though, I mean, I think women, I don't know about men because I've never been in a men's Bible study.
0: You should join one. That'd be fun. Women's oh, sure.
1: Bible studies, like Beth Moore, okay? And I'm not saying anything against Beth Moore necessarily, but what we can do in that is like if you were preaching, we'd go, uh-uh, Beth Moore said. So some man who has been, or a preacher who has been trained and has studied and is anointed, I believe, by God, called by God to give us the word of God, and sometimes we'll have our own little thing, you know, Beth Moore said. So I can't trust you because that went against what Beth Moore said, you know. Or it or be John Piper or John, John MacArthur. MacArthur or. But, you know, we do, in a sense, kind of hold that person's word higher yeah. than yeah. yours who... Yeah.
0: You've done just as much study My dad was my dad was a pastor. Um, he's retired now and he planted a church and um, I don't know if you guys know who Adrian Rogers is. Do you guys know who Adrian? He, he's he's long since passed away, but he's like one of the most famous Southern Baptist preachers of all time. He has he had a huge mega church in Tennessee and he's called like the Prince of modern day preachers. He's supposed to be this eloquent preacher. Well, um, there was a lady in my dad's church that was a member. She grew up in Adrian Rogers Church. And she came to my dad and, and basically said, you know what? You should probably listen to these sermons. She kind of gave him some tapes. And my, and my dad said, it was her subtle way of saying, you better learn how to preach like him or you've got a lot of, of learning to go. And, and my dad's like, there's no way I'm ever going to preach like Adrian Rogers, if you've ever heard Adrian Rogers preach. And a lot of people focus on the pastor okay. rather than the message. Yeah. Because Yeah. Or you can see yeah, way. I would much rather when you walk out on a Sunday morning. I don't want you to say, "Man, I, that illustration from Pastor Sean was cool," or "I'm really glad," or I'm, "I really like the way he caught that phrase." I'd rather you walk up being, "Wow, I'm fed today by God's word because I've worshipped Jesus and, and He was faithful to the text." That's what I want you to say. What are some other things you can? Yeah, yes, Jerry. Doesn't it also determine what your definition of success is. Yeah. How do you define success? Yeah is it, it is it, whether it they want the real man that's sure. known throughout the whole country or this little creature that sure uh, sure yeah do we do we define success by num- Do we assign success by nickel's noses and numbers a lot of times a lot of people do or building budgets and butts or do we do it by <laughs> how many people are coming how big is your building and how much money do you have that's what success is versus are people growing to be more like Christ? Are they loving one another? Are they demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit? Are they truly growing? You know, how do, you, how do you measure success? What are some other things that people may worship above Jesus that may even be good things? Well, it's kind of the same as the Pope. Okay, the Pope. You guys are really picking on Catholics. He's coming to Philadelphia. He's coming to Philadelphia in a couple of weeks or a couple months. Okay, so a man, like a figurehead, whatever figurehead that would be. Okay. Family. What do you mean by that, Russell. More and it's you know taking away from you know your worship to to God. Yeah, it's all about yeah. So it doesn't necessarily have to be like when we think of idols or things that take the place of Jesus, they don't have to be these big bad things that are like you know you know it's a heroin for me. You know it could be not not necessarily for me. I'm not saying I'm just saying I'm saying for some people like oh it's heroin, it's it's internet pornography, it's gambling. Doesn't have to be those big hairy big things. It could just be like my family or my job or, or anything that's good but if it takes the place of Jesus we're basically elevating that above Jesus and we're saying we may not say it out loud but we're saying those things are better that's the biggest danger i think the hebrew of the book of hebrews is to say is there anything better to you than jesus if there is that's an idol and jesus needs to be better than those things okay what time is it 7:30 thir- is it 7:32 okay so let's just, one thing is that I wrote this on the board earlier. In this sevenfold description of Jesus, we see these things again. Jesus is the prophet through whom God spoke his final word. We saw that in verse 1. Jesus is the priest who's accomplished the finished work of salvation. He made purifications for sin and he sat down. And Jesus is the king who sits enthroned in majesty as the sovereign ruler over the universe. So we worship Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. My question to you then is, is this a compelling portrait of Christ? And I hope you say yes. But the second question, is this the Christ that people see in our culture? And why would you say no, Dave? I think people, too many people are stuck on the, the hippie-like guy in sandals and kind of cool with the world and okay. everything's fine. I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the Jesus with product in my hair, feathered back, holding the little lamb, walking around, giving, pithy, giving pith, pithy statements, talking in a British accent, and never offending anybody. I mean, that's when you see Jesus portrayed in some of those movies, he's like these little, this passive man with the British accent, and he's walking around. And it's like this wimpy Jesus. Okay, It's like the wimpy Jesus. What do you call him, the hippie? The hippie <laughs> Jesus, the wimpy Jesus. So what are some other? I mean, do you guys think that people in, let's not talk about the culture out there. Let's not talk about the big bad world out there. Let's talk about the church, not just necessarily Emmanuel Baptist Church, but the church in general. Do you think Christians in general have this view of Jesus that we've just seen in, in Hebrews? Of the sovereign, exalted, king of kings, Lord of lords, ultimate authority, Christ who is the radiance of God and is seated at the right hand, holding everything together in his power. Okay, because here's my argument. If we truly viewed Jesus like that, this world would be a lot different place. And our churches would be a lot different place. Okay, just think about that for a moment. What's the one way you're going to be motivated to serve and to love and to live for Jesus? Is it going to be by giving you legalistic rules to do? Or is it going to be by holding up who Jesus is so that you're captured by him and you want to do it because he's so awesome? What's the motivation? There's two different ways I can motivate you on a Sunday morning or even tonight. I could come in here and say, okay, the Bible says, witness. The Bible says, love your brother and sister. The Bible says, give money and tithes and offerings. The Bible says to serve. The Bible says this. So you better do it. You better do it. Go out there and do it because that's what you're supposed to do. And every good Christian knows they're supposed to do that, so you better do it. Would you guys leave feeling pretty deflated? Some of you would leave here being like, there's two responses you'd have leave, leaving this place. Some of you would be like, you'd hang your head in shame and say, I don't ever want to go back there again because all he did was make me feel guilty. And there's no way I can do that. Some of you walk out of here thinking, that's not too hard. He's given me a list of things to do. Let me put it in my phone. Let me write it down. Let me get my check off. I can do these things in my own power. Those are the two, both of those are wrong, right? One of them's doing things in your own power. The other one's walking away in guilt. The way to motivate you to serve and for me to serve is not to tell you, do it in your own power because it's what you're supposed to do. It's to say this, look at how awesome Jesus is and look at what he's done for you and how he's changed you. And based upon that, serve him because you want to out of the overflow of what he's giving you. Is that a better motivation? Yes. But how do you think most people operate? I want a to-do list. And that's probably why you're frustrated. Like, I could just picture the church getting this letter from this pastor. Come on, dude. You're not telling us what to do. Give us our list. Give us, we're, from, you know, we're from the sacrificial system with the temple and the, and the sacrifices and, and the synagogues. We want the rabbi to come tell us what to do, and you're not doing that. You're just showing us how awesome Christ is. How boring is that? Give us what we want to do or what we need to do. Don't give me a portrait of Jesus. That's just, that, that's that's pie in the sky theology. That's not going to mean anything. And what does the writer of Hebrews do? He blows that out of the water from the very beginning. and says, no, everything else that I'm going to teach you to do in this book, I'm laying the foundation that none of it matters unless you have this grand, awesome, powerful view of Jesus as the motivation for you to do anything. And he's greater than angels. So let's move into this next section. And... Basically, the second half of chapter 1, you could say Jesus is better than angels. And he's going to give seven reasons why Jesus is better than angels. And I'm not going to go really in-depth on this because I don't think we necessarily struggle with worshiping angels, but they must have. And so the very first thing that the writer of Hebrews wants to address is this issue of angels. And what he's going to do, because this is a sermon he's going to give seven Old Testament references to support what he's saying. So he's going to like say a statement and it comes directly from the Old Testament. So that's why a lot of people think this is a sermon. Okay? So, Jesus, number one, seven Old Testament texts that teach Jesus the superior angels. All right, let's just read this, verse five. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you? And what's the, what's the answer? God never said that to an angel. Did God ever say to an angel, you're my son? No. So Jesus has the unique title of son of God. That's his title. He's the son of God. Angels did not. And again, this comes from Psalm chapter 2, 6 through 7. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. That's a direct quote there from Psalm 2. Jesus has the title of Son of God. Angels never had that title. Number two. Oh, remember Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1? In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I'm well pleased. So Jesus has the title of the beloved Son of God. Angels don't don't have that. So he has the title. But not only does he have the title, but Jesus has the position. He's got the title there's not much of a difference between a title and a position, is there? They're, they're, they're linked together. If you're the vice president of operations, that's your title, right? But it's also your position. So So one tells people kind of who you are. The other one tells people kind of what you do, okay? So Jesus has the unique position of the Son of God as well as the title. Angels do not. Let's keep reading. Or, again... I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is when God gave the covenant to David that we looked at just a few weeks ago on Sunday mornings, 2 Samuel 7. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is the whole issue of God being the son, or God being the father, Jesus being the son. Angels never had that position. Number three. Jesus is to be worshipped, not angels. In fact, they worship Him. Verse 6. And again, when He brings the firstborn into the world, He says, let all God's angels worship Him. And that's from Psalm 97.7. All worshipers of images are to be put to shame who makes their boast in worthless idols. Worship Him, all you gods. Now, um, gods there translated in ESV can also be translated angels. Worship Him, all you angels. Because He's the creator of all things. Colossians 1, seven. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created. We've already looked at that. All things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Okay? So Jesus is superior to angels. Number four here. Angels do have an important function and role in God's kingdom, but they're still inferior to Jesus. Verse 7, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and he himself and his ministers a flame of fire. Uh, that comes from Psalm one hundred 104.3 for the sake of time. We, you know, we won't look at every Old Testament reference, but these are Old Testament references. Yes, angels are ministers of God. They, they do go out and accomplish his will, but they're not the Son of God, and they're not to be worshipped. Jesus is not a created being, but angels are created beings. Verse 8, but of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions. That comes from Psalm 45, 6-7. Number six, again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Jesus rules in righteousness and justice as the eternal creator and in times judge. That's not been given to angels. That comes from Psalm 102, 25 through 27. And the seventh thing, Jesus is currently reigning as the enthroned king. Verse 10 You laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. It's talking about the end times. They're like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? There's that whole issue of, of being seated at the right hand. And so Jesus is currently enthroned at the right hand of God. None of this is applicable to Angels. And again, Psalm 110 is the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament. And verse 14 is a summary servant. A summary scripture. Are they not, that's talking about angels, are not angels ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit eternal salvation? Okay, so angels are ministering spirits, but they're not to be worshipped. They play a role in the life of believers, those who will inherit salvation, but they are never to be worshipped. So I've kind of talked about this. What's the burden of this preacher in the introduction to his sermon? His sermon intro here? Before he calls or urges them to do anything, he wants to establish from the very beginning the absolute supremacy of Christ above all things as King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's as far as we're going to go tonight because your heads are probably about to explode. So what I want to do is I'm going to leave time for questions, comments, and snide remarks. So do you guys have any questions? (laughs) Some of you are new. You don't know that line. Do you guys have any questions or, or observations or clarifications? One thing I would say is... It is very, very important for you as a Christian to know your Bible, especially the Old Testament. And don't raise your hands, but I think a lot of times Christians are fearful of the Old Testament more so than the New Testament. Let's just ask a question. Is the New Testament easier to follow than the Old Testament? It's more relatable, right? Stories of Jesus, Paul, you can trace them. But then you get to like you know, Nahum or Habakkuk or Haggai or Malachi or even Deuteronomy. Sometimes the Old Testament's foreign, and so we just kind of avoid the Old Testament because we don't want to deal with it. But let me just remind you, how much of your Bible is Old Testament versus New Testament? (laughs) Two-thirds. So in order to fully understand the New Testament, you really need to have a working knowledge of the Old Testament. And so when we go through Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, you, you, you really, we're at a disadvantage if you don't know your Old Testament because these people did. And he's going to address a lot of issues that are from the Old Testament. So one of my goals is to take us back to the Old Testament because they knew their Bibles better than we do. And so that's why it's important to do the Bible reading plan or have a way to read through the entire Bible in a year so you can get exposed to parts of the Bible you'd never read. Um 'Cause who picks up the Bible and just says, I'm gonna read Leviticus today for my quiet time? I wanna read about mold laws and mildew laws. That's gonna get me going in the morning. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> if you gotta go clean your house. What are some other you guys have any other questions or we'll call it, we'll call it quits for tonight?
1: Miss